What's up, y'all, and welcome to Leadership with Latoya for Leaders on the Go. We're excited to bring you the next episode in our Instructional Leadership Series. As you might recall, we've been focusing on professional learning communities. And today, we're going to talk about the second of those four critical questions we discussed last week. But let's not get started without welcoming our co-host, Mike Wakesness. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Latoya, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. I'm really excited to get into question two because I think that is a question that we kind of miss the mark on a lot of times. And it seems like it should be so simple. But as with everything, it may seem simple, but of course it's not. Absolutely. So, Mike, let's give the listeners a, a refresher really quick on what the four questions for professional learning communities are. Uh, can you start with the, the first two so we can get them primed and ready to talk? Certainly, certainly. So last week we talked about the first question, and, and that simply is, what is it that we want students to know and learn? So we know in a course there are a ton of standards, and you're probably never going to cover them all, at least not with any depth. So question one really deals with, uh, as a collective group, your PLC team, digging into the standards and identifying the essential standards that students must know from your class. So we talked a lot about that, and then this week, question number two, we're going to talk about how do we know when they've learned that material. And lots of times, that's kind of the missing link, but it seems so simple. So question two, what we're going to talk about today is how do we know when they've learned it? Great question, Mike. Questions three and four, what will we do when they haven't learned it? And four, what do we do when they already know it? Uh, so let's dive into question two. How do we know when they learn it? To me, Mike, that points directly to assessment and how we ensure that we are assessing students around those things that we've determined they should know and be able to do. When you think about that question, what particular instructional leadership practices come to mind uh, for principals? What do you think principals ought to be focused on if they're trying to dive into that second question with teachers? I think uh, mainly... You need to create conditions where your teachers are creating common assessments. Because in reality, if your teachers are not using common assessments and then using that data, they can't really be a PLC. That's kind of the first step. You have to have common formative assessments. And um, a good place to start would be is just figuring out what your teachers know about assessment. Are they really clear on the differences between formative and summative assessments? Are you really clear on formative and summative assessments? Then helping them develop and give them time to work on common assessments. I think you're right. And can you go a little further with that, Mike? Because I think what happens many, many times when we say teachers need to formatively assess. And essentially what we're saying is they need to be checking for understanding as they're providing instruction before it gets to the big unit test or the big summative test to find out if students are ready to move on to the next topic uh, in our instructional plan. But I want to talk further about that formative assessment piece. Last week, you, you alluded to a very important piece and talked about how important the process was as, as much as the product. So there are so many vendors out there that say, hey, you can use our assessments. They're aligned to your state standards or they're aligned to Common Core, whatever your state or district may uh, ascribe to. If you just use what we've put together in terms of assessments, if students do well on these, they'll do well on the, the big high stakes test. What do you say to that? 
Well, first I say a caution principles. Remember, those are our salesmen and saleswomen. They are trying to sell you a product. So while I'm sure some of those products are good and aligned, you know, you're taking a chance. And what we've learned, what Latoya and I have learned in our experience is teachers pouring through the standards and then talking about and collectively coming up with the questions are that process is such a value you're probably going to get a better question 90% of the time but you're also going to have your teachers going through that process talking about the standards and having a dialogue absolutely Mike I could not agree more I think what happens when we don't ask teachers to engage in determining what mastering would look like around a particular set of content standards, what rigor really looks like, what the standard is really asking students to do, what's the depth of knowledge that's required around that learning, is we give teachers a pass to disengage from the process of teaching. Uh, and I think the process is important because teachers are being asked to cognitively commit to thinking about how am I going to be certain that my students know and understand what it is I intended for them to learn from my instruction. So if you are in a school and you wanted to work on this professional learning community process, perhaps you've already gone through the first question and you've done a lot of standards unpacking and deep diving to look at what it is students are supposed to know and be able to do, but you just aren't there yet around common formative assessments. How would you approach that? And I'm thinking particularly, Mike, about my one of my principalship experiences um, that I experienced some grave resistance to that strategy from a particular grade level and had great success from a, a different grade level. How do you help people who say, you know, we are willing to work together, but we are not willing to trust each other's thinking enough to agree upon a formative assessment? What kind of structures would you put in place and where do you start? Latoya, those, that's a, those are great questions. I think really it goes back to what we talked about last week too, is building the culture and building that trust among teachers. And really, I mean, frankly, telling teachers that we are going to collaborate, you don't have the option. Because I think a lot of times as leaders, um, and I would say both of us, Latoya, we were, I guess, you know, teachers seem to like us as principals and follow us and enjoy our leadership style. But we also need to make sure that teachers aren't given the option to opt out of collaboration. We know everywhere in just about every business and in education from all the research, it's about collaboration. Collective teacher efficacy has one of the highest um, effect sizes uh, from Hattie's research. Teacher collaboration has tremendous effect size and it just makes no sense if we know one teacher is rocking out, out of the park and one teacher is not to say, well, you know, that's okay, poor John, he has the teacher that's not doing so well, so that just kind of sinks for him. We need to make sure we're setting the conditions so teachers choose to collaborate. But also at some point, you just might need to say, we're going to collaborate. We're going to figure this out together as a team. But this is where we're going as a school. I think you make an excellent point, Mike. I think when we look at successful organizations, you know, folks often like to compare what we do in public education to the business model. 
and they like to do that when it's convenient for their argument. So I'm going to take an opportunity to do just that. But I think when we look at the business model, what we find many times is a team approach. The business model looks at how do we exploit strengths and mitigate weaknesses. In essence, what the professional learning community model does is allows us to reduce the variation in poor teaching practice and in student learning. And so what happens is we are able to um, provide certain with more assurance that students are actually getting the same quality of learning and instruction and being assessed at the same rigorous level, regardless of the teacher whose classroom they may be assigned to. I think that's a very, very important piece. And I think that because uh, sometimes when you get into this work around professional learning communities, you see some things that relate to competition really come out. And we have to get folks away from competition mindset and a collaborative mindset, one where we all take ownership in the success of all of our children and move our teachers from saying things like my class into our school. I think when you shift that kind of conversation, um, the resistance you face, um, it, it's reduced uh, because the pride that, you know, um, teachers take, uh, that pride is amazing when they see good results. And I think they like to talk about good things that are happening in their school. And I'm afraid that in some ways, perhaps the strong focus on accountability over the last uh, 20 years or so has somewhat eroded the, the mood for collaboration. But we know it is a best practice. It is an evidence-based research solid strategy for school improvement. I Listeners, did you know you can send a voice message to the Leadership with LaToya anchors? All you have to do is while listening to our podcast in the Anchor app, tap the message button. Record a voice message of one minute or less. Tap the play button to preview your message. Tap save to send or undo to record another message. If sending, enter a title and then tap send message. And guess what? We'll answer your message in our next episode. Doctor to say, well, I kind of like this procedure, but I don't really know if it's backed by data. Or I kind of like, I have a hunch this works, but I don't really know. So when you teach, let's start using some data and evidence and collaborating and taking collective responsibility. Yeah, and let's take that a step, that analogy, you can drive it a step further. You know, Mike, when I, if you go to a doctor or if I go to a doctor, and he's unsure about how to treat whatever it is that I'm having difficulty with. I want him to collaborate with all the best brains around him in the workplace so that he can come up with the best solution and the best prescription for my particular diagnosis. I mean, if you think about it in that way, collaboration is the key to so many great things that have happened in our world and problems that have been solved. And I think we have to help educators and particularly principals see that it's really not about about finding a set of superstar teachers. What it's about is being able to organize a team and prioritize what those improvement strategies and put the right structures and set the right conditions to allow people to collectively reach their full potential. I think that's exactly right, LaToya. You know, we talk a lot about setting the conditions and 
And principals, uh, administrators, I'll warn you, don't just think you can tell teachers, okay, do a PLC and think magic's going to happen. As the leader, you need to immerse yourself in learning all you can about the PLC process and then setting the conditions. Because I think with this one, Latoya, it really starts with the administrator setting the conditions and having a strong knowledge base will help you achieve that goal. Well, Mike, before we go, I want to make one last point, and that is if you don't get the first two questions in the PLC process right and you try and attempt to move on to the third and fourth question, what do we do when students don't know it? And what do we do they already know it? What are the potential consequences of that? Well, I think we might be wasting a lot of time and energy and effort and focus if we're skipping over the first two. Because how do you really know who are the students that need the extra support or need the extra help? If you're relying on a once a year test to give you that, that's some data, but that's certainly not the best data. Having up-to-date data on a continuous basis, that will let you effectively delve into questions three and four. I cannot agree more. And just to add a little bit to that, you know, if we aren't clear about what it is students know and, and should know and be able to do, it's nearly impossible for us to adequately and accurately assess them in a way that gives us that information and then use that information from the assessment to determine what interventions or practices or enrichment activities we need to put in place. I mean, it is truly organized in a fashion in, in a logical fashion and sequence for a reason. It's not something we just skip around and pick and choose. You start with the first question, move to the second one, and it really outlines the process that should happen for teaching and learning. You might notice that we began this talking about what are the standards and then talking about what the, what the assessment should look like. So in our work together, Mike, I know we always told teachers, you know, start with the standards, design the assessment, and then build your instructional plans to get students to a point where they can be successful on the assessment you design. I think we'll talk more about that next week in our next or next in our next episode in this instructional leadership series. We have a new tool on our website that we want you to check out. If you go to LatoyaDixon5, the number 5.com, and click on resources, you'll find an instructional leadership planner tool that we just put out. We'd love to hear your feedback. Further, we're going to be sending out a link to our listeners that will allow you to send us questions through our podcast, and we'll look forward to maybe trying to answer some of those in the next episode. Until next time, be you, be true, be a hope builder. This is Leadership with LaToya for Leaders on the Ground.